What is freedom? Maybe a better question is where? Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore offers an answer to this elusive question. Freedom, she says, is a place. It makes sense that one of the world's foremost abolitionist scholars would be a geographer. Dr. Gilmore is deeply concerned with the places, not just prisons, but also homes, schools, high streets and offices, where carceralism is enacted and where one day freedom might reign. Thanks to Dr. Gilmore, most abolitionists tend to think this way these days. Now Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and Director of the Centre for Place, Culture and Politics at the City University of New York's Graduate Centre, Dr. Gilmore is much better known as creator of the field of carceral geography and someone who has practically defined how we understand abolition today. No surprise then that two other scholars have collected Dr. Gilmore's essays, talks and interviews in Abolition Geography, published by Verso earlier this month. One central idea in Dr. Gilmore's thinking, an idea that clearly stems from her cartographic view of the world, is that of abolition as presence. The notion that the work of abolition is not just that of tearing down, but also of building up. This idea contains within it that of the Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Abolition as presence suggests that while our ultimate goal, the disbanding of police departments, mass decarceration, might not be immediately achievable, there is work to do in the present. This is a message that abolitionists in the UK still reeling from the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act being written into law just a couple of weeks ago, should find encouraging. We may have lost this particular legislative fight, but there is still a world to win. Abolition as presence means reinvesting in mental health services, public transport and schools, means raising wages and capping rents, means universalising free, high-quality care for the sick, old and young. It means creating a society that needs no policing, starting in the places closest to us. Dr. Gilmore, or Ruthie as she is sometimes known, was in New York when we spoke, so couldn't be with me when we recorded this interview. But as you'll hear, her intellectual force can be felt from thousands of miles away. I'm very thankful to be joined by Dr. Gilmore, or Ruthie, as she's sometimes known. Uh, She is based on the East Coast, but is joining us virtually today. And yeah, welcome so much, Ruthie. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rivka. It's nice to be here in conversation with you, and I'm grateful for the invitation. So I wanted to start with an anecdote that you give in your work of when you were a kid, you talk about how old ladies would hang out on the block and if they'd see you mess up, they'd tell your grandma. Whereas nowadays, you talk about how people would just call the police. Um, And in your work, you talk about how the reason people would do this, um, or at least the reason people would give for doing this is... um, quite a US specific reason. You say they're worried about getting shot. But obviously, this is not just a US phenomenon. And it's not just 
to do with guns. Um, and actually, your anecdote about policing children's behaviour is actually very pertinent to the U- UK. I don't know whether you saw the recent news about a child known as Child Q, um, who was subject to an unsupervised strip search, uh, whilst a 15-year-old girl, uh, after her teachers called the police, after supposedly smelling weed on her. Um And I'm interested in this idea that you talk about a lot in your work, and I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on now, um, which is the idea of guard duty and how so many of us have come to perform uh, the duties of policing without being the police. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for it. And um, let me elaborate a little bit from my childhood. In my childhood in the 1950s, although the vulnerability of children to premature death in the United States from police violence was certainly present. It wasn't in the front of people's minds the way it's become in the uh, starting the last third or so of the 20th century and into the 21st. So I'm not minimizing what grandmas were worried about, but the fact is grandmas, elderly people in the block, housewives, if there were any, which were relatively rare, and other, um, looked after and often uh, disciplined, with words, um, other people's children, and all of us who were, everybody was somebody else's child, um, socially speaking, um, tended to mind those people. And if we didn't, we actually worried about getting caught anyway. If there was somebody we, you know, gave lip to or disobeyed. And and I'm not saying we were well-behaved children. We were bad kids. We were rambunctious kids. We fought a lot. We did all kinds of things, um, as well as, you know, we were kids who loved people and kids who um, all were trying to make our way in the confusing world we lived in. So um, bringing that forward to the child Q example, which is uh, um, uh, something that happened in the UK, but we can see uh, evidence of that kind of behavior proliferating in many places around the world, certainly all over the US. Um, We see that um, uh, institutions that uh, were designed, however uh, flawed, to uh, produce public goods, like schools, for example, um, have uh, uh, absorbed as well as imitated the work of police uh, to such a great extent that for many cases, it seems as though the educational activities that schools are supposed to provide however much we might debate the content of that education, has become secondary to the disciplining function that is more and more coercive. Um, So you asked me then to elaborate on the proliferation of guard duty. There are lots of different ways to think about this. And if we were doing a... um, a conversation that allowed visuals, I would show some pictures of changes in things like average hourly compensation for workers, 
the frequency with in which with which workers have to change jobs. We I can do this for the UK or the US. Um, uh, the uh, level or low level or non-existence of unions and other forceful associations of workers to advance their um, power to command good pay and benefits and protections, all of that. And if we look at the uh, reduction in, in all of those key indicators, then we have to ask ourselves, what happens as a result of the disorder that the reduction in worker power, worker pay, and so forth, has cast into the general social order. And the, uh, one of the answers that we can trace is looking how the kinds of jobs or kinds of responsibilities for people who already had jobs have changed over time to require more and more police-like functions of ordinary workers, like teachers who are ordinary workers, or people who work in fast food, or in product distribution, or in you know any number of other um, um, areas. One of my colleagues uh, from many years ago, a guy called Samuel Bowles, an economist, started to notice in the US context how the changes in employment patterns for modestly educated people at the prime of their life, those are the very kinds of people who get caught up in uh, prison, uh, criminalization, immigration, detention, and so forth. So modestly educated people in the prime of life. How many uh, employment positions can best be understood as guard positions, even if that's not what they're named. So let's take an example, McDonald's. An assistant manager at McDonald's, with all respect to all assistant managers at McDonald's, is effectively a guard. What she is doing is making sure that the people who work on her shift come on time, fill out their timesheets properly, don't take money out of the till, and don't give free food to their friends. That is guard labor. And that guard labor connects to what I was talking about earlier, which is to say the reduction in pay, reduction in benefits, the way in which so many people are, um, uh, for want of a better term, cast loose in the world without uh, secure options for being able to make livings and make lives. Does that mean that everyone who works at McDonald's is at heart a thief? No. Does that mean that, um, uh, what do we want to call them? Illegal entitlements are not part of how people cobble their lives together? Of course they are. Of course they are. To go back to child Q, Again, we see that in the context of a school where people can say, yes, but the teachers are not minding the till, they're not minding the timesheets, they're not making sure that people are not giving free education to their friends, which is like a really lovely idea. And what you and I are doing right here is trying to give free education to friends and strangers. Exactly. 
<laughs> Navarra <laughs> FM, free education. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but still, what's happened is that the school has um, uh, incorporated and, again, is imitating the processes whereby there are um, uh, judgments that precede kind of every social interaction and evaluate every social actor, whether they're a school child or a, a fast food worker or a delivery person, for um, eligibility. And the kind of violent um, display of non-eligibility that was visited on child Q, even though we did not see it, Child Q experienced it, was part of the social spectacle that confirms rather than destabilizes guard duty and police power as somehow fundamental to the um, uh, stable operation of the social order. Mm, this is really interesting because it, it kind of answers in a way my next question, which was to say that like, why is it that not only are people deputizing for the police, I suppose it, it suggests that because people are increasingly deputizing for the police, they also are placing more trust in the institution of the police, of policing, or at least like not less trust. Like I was looking at a recent poll of British adults from October of last year, which showed that trust in the police has waned like really only very marginally in the past like three years, a couple of percentage points, despite COVID, despite Sarah Everard, and that actually men distrust the police even more than women by a by a margin of nine percentage points. And this is from a poll which was taken something like just a few days after Wayne Cousins was was sentenced for Sarah Everard's kidnap, rape and murder. And I'm wondering, like, why is trust in police so resilient despite the continual evidence that they don't deserve it? Does it relate to the previous question, which is like people are increasingly cops themselves without realising it and effectively kind of embodying all of the functions of the police without the title? And so, of course, they would think that policing is a as a necessary institution, despite scandal after scandal. Yes. And, and let's take this further, because I imagine people listening to us now will say, wait a second. What do you mean people are increasingly cops? They don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, ah, let me go forth today and do my cop duty without a badge or a weapon. True enough. But we have to be mindful of how people's subjectivities have shaped and reshaped along this long period of increased criminalization, of massive um, use of detention and incarceration to quote unquote solve all kinds of problems that are easily solved otherwise. Um, so that that subjectivity, which is shared by many kinds of people, like many kinds of people, there's no necessary um, uh, kind of mapping of certain subjective positions with respect to police onto certain groupings, even if we can prove over and over again that certain kinds of people are most vulnerable to harm, right? So the, those two things 
go in in divergent directions and it's mm. you know it's our challenge to understand that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be persuasive about why that should be so the easiest way for me to summarize is the old tried and true metaphor and that is if the only t- tool you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail So in the social world, so much of uh, widespread and deepening um, uh, social insecurity, as well as uh, various kinds of disorder, um, uh, uh, seem in the official mainstream press and in other kinds of Uh, uh, opinions uh, put forward by people who count seem to be the result of antisocial and criminal behavior, then it makes sense that people would uh, embrace the idea that what we do is just hammer all those nails. And the hammer is policing and um, uh, guard duty. Yeah. as well as the the things down the road that the result from them. Yeah, it it makes me think, though, about I mean, it's Tony Blair's formulation about his kind of war on crime, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Why is it that we, you know, tough on being tough on crime, solving the or addressing the symptom is in is in many ways like much more labor intensive and expensive than addressing the causes. I mean, I, I don't know whether that's what you were alluding to when you said like these are issues which are much easier to solve in other ways, or perhaps I misunderstood. But I, I just kind of want to understand like why, you know, even new labor, which, you know, famously reactionary in lots of ways, um, including on kind of race and crime, you know, Tony Blair created, I think in our last episode of Navarra FM that I presented, I discovered from the book that I read for that episode that Tony Blair created the equivalent of one criminal offence for every single day he was in office. So 3,000 new criminal offences. Um, so he was a very carceral prime minister, but he was also, um, you know, trying in various ways, some of them relatively superficial, and we can question the efficacy of them, but to address um, the kind of social inequalities and tensions that might have produced crime. Why have, Why does it seem that we have given up, you know, wh- why have our governments, particularly in the UK and in the US, I suppose, given up on the causes of crime, even though you would think, even from a purely kind of strategic perspective, it's it's kind of the more effective route. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just simply go to the like, how do we stop people from doing crime? How do we punish the crimes effectively? How do we how do we punish? How do we punish? Well, that that gives us a little bit of insight into some possible answers that that we can explore in our conversation. One is that uh, Blair, uh, like his um, uh, neoliberal uh, brethren uh, around NATO, (laughs) if you will, um, uh, was uh, very keen on uh, producing new crimes as part of, you know, legislative agendas. And those uh, new crimes 
as 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 we can see if we if we read closely in the parliamentary record or in the record of the United States Congress or in the record of the various states of the United States which have their entire own you know legislative agendas that that produce um, uh, laws um, uh, we we can see that there's a certain amount of um, pandering to certain kinds of anxieties expressed by people who are likely to vote and certain kinds of, um, uh, how do I want to say, tendencies to assure people who might not be likely to vote that their concerns in some way, however distorted, will be addressed. All right, so so these are these are perhaps two different segments of the electorate, but there they are, um, hailed to a project of neoliberal restructuring that is itself the march of organized abandonment that I talked about at the beginning when I talked about wages, benefits, uh, precarious employment, and so forth. Right, so all of these things are connected. And um, uh, and it's not surprising that somebody like Blair, not unlike somebody like Clinton, his opposite number at that time, not unlike somebody like the a succession of governors of California, both parties, U.S. parties, Republican and Democrat alike, um, did exactly the same kinds of things. More crimes, like just rolled new crimes out. And people who are listening might think, wait a second, how can they make new crimes? I assure you, if you will slog through (laughs) the third chapter of my book about California, and don't worry whether or not you're interested in California, you will see it happen. And then you can take a step back and say, oh, does this happen where I live? And I think you will find it does. I think you will find it does. So, So things that did not use, uh, were not formally crimes, become crimes, things that had already been prohibited become kind of doubled and tripled in terms of the, the kinds of punishment um, that, that, that goes along with being convicted of, 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 those, um, of those activities, and that the punishment includes, in many cases, in the UK as well as in the US, Um, exclusion from certain kinds of opportunities and protections, which then create the conditions for an entire new round of precariousness, which then leads to, you know, other kinds of encounters with uh, the coercive forces of the state, including, again, to go back to child Q, coercive forces of the state who are not themselves you know, wearing badges and carrying weapons and driving cars with flashing lights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, like to go back to my question, I suppose, like why, why is it that we've become less concerned with the causes of that crime and simply with the crime itself? Like what, where did we kind of lose, at what stage did we lose the, the curiosity about like the, the social conditions which produce crime? Or obviously crime itself being a construct, but which produce, even if we could agree, like harm, mm-hmm. harm between human beings. 
Well, okay. So let me see if I can approach that, which I thought I was talking about. So I'm, I'm clearly not being direct. Let me think. The, the enormous upheavals in the, um, in, in the global capitalist system, I'm going to make some huge claims and then back off them a little bit. But the enormous upheavals in the global system of capitalist production, distribution, and consumption over the last 50 years um, means, among other things, that in particular places, especially particular places that had been um, uh, the beneficiaries, whether we think core periphery or we think colonial, post-colonial, or uh, neo-colonial, however we think it, had been the beneficiaries of global inequalities and had been riding on the top, even though within those places, the UK, the US, inequalities were very, very deep all along, that, that those changes produced an upheaval in, among other things, what many kinds of people believed could be changed to secure the conditions of everyday life, right? What can we do? What is possible? The, you know, the destruction of for example, the mine workers union and the mine workers in the UK, you know, completely cracked and fragmented, you know, entire regions of that country. Not exclusively mine, mining and mine workers, but that's certainly key. Um, the production or the organized abandonment, I'm going to stick with that phrase, of um, the old industrial cores of the United States. Northeast, Upper Midwest, and so forth, again, fragmented entire ways of life. I am not saying, and no one should hear me to say, that we should go back to those good old days because those good old days were dependent on somebody suffering somewhere else or somebody suffering there not seen. But the changes and the kinds of insecurity thrown up by the withdrawal of good blue collar jobs, for example, or the jobs that come alongside those jobs, which might not be so good, but they were secure, whether they're in um, uh, service work or other kinds of positions, then made so many people extremely nervous about what was going to happen to them next. Now, if we remember the great book that Stuart Hall and his colleagues published in 1978, Policing the Crisis, we remember that in the first uh, section of that book, uh, one of the things they um, uh, explore really deeply is what they call the social production of news and how certain kinds of explanations for more broadly um, understandable problems rose to the top of the news agenda and then were kind of reinforced 
by how, for example, newspaper editors um, uh, selected or curated or whatever word you'd like to use, the kinds of letters they got from ordinary readers that reinforced the dominant narrative of the problem is crime, the problem is mugging, and therefore the, the response should be more policing. So there's that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but that mm-hmm. connects to the bigger argument that that they make, and it's one that many of us, um, you know, learned from them and have taken to heart and are trying to understand in the current context, and that is the production of a moral panic. The moral panic doesn't arise out of nothing, but it also displaces a whole lot of um, anxiety, insecurity, uh, worry onto something very specific, mm-hmm. right? Something yeah. very paci- specific that looks like it can be um, managed, if not vanquished, using already existing very powerful forces. Right. So rather than, as you were saying, our curiosity about the possibility of people, you know, solving problems. Uh, in in different ways, this seems so persuasive because the problem solver comes on a shining steed in an outfit with a sure agenda mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for resolution. Right. So it's. I mean, I understand. Thank you for re-explaining that. I understand lo- a lot better now. <laughs> Although it does seem like the media is a is is a large part of this manufacturing of uh, of consent <laughs> um, and. So I suppose it's the search for kind of easy solutions and the temptation of um, easy explanations also of um, of why things are going wrong. It's funny you talk about moral panics because I obviously I suppose that the moral panic here is was and still is crime. Although nowadays the moral panic also is police abolition, mm-hmm. right? In America, police abolition has become its uh, its own kind of. Uh, moral panic, like much less so in the UK, sadly, in a way, because it reflects the fact that police abolition is less of a an agenda setting um, kind of movement. But I mean, can you talk about how that's kind of come about in the US and and maybe the effect that it's had on um, decarceral movements, the kind of moral panic around defund the police? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's a great question. Um And it's something, um, in short, we might have well predicted, but that didn't matter because the, um, uh, as it were, spontaneous combustion of the summer of 2020 um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder uh, was, was such that there was no point in saying the, the, Forces of of um, uh, the media and the forces of the political class will turn this into part of what they already have exi- uh, convinced themselves and others is a, a fundamental problem in the United States. So turning defund into, as it were, an arm of criminal criminality was kind of easy. And I'm not criticizing anybody who has called for defund. 
Mm. This is not my point. My point is, not surprisingly, um, that it was, it has been relatively easy for all kinds of news media, both mainstream and in the, in the social spheres, um, to uh, lift up calls for defund and cynically or sloppily, it makes no difference, connect those to false reportage of changes in people's um, not legally sanctioned behavior, right? So there are stories that, that have swarmed around the United States uh, that claim that, for example, um, uh, shops that sell uh, healthcare products and pharmaceutical products in in the San Francisco Bay Area have closed because gangs of kids are going in and robbing them blind. It's like it's made up, but this has has circulated regularly through newspapers like the New York Times and through podcasts that have millions of listeners um, as uh, the, the, quote, natural outcome of defund the police. Right. And indeed, the New York Times, which is, you know, the newspaper of record in the United States, har, 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 the New York Times did a big headline in the wake of certain, you know, major municipalities' uh, budget um, uh, resolutions to say, oh, the police got back their money. They never lost their money. There was like never one iota of defunding happening, but to say they got it back then produced in people's minds the notion that if there is disorder, in the streets and in shops and so on and so forth. That was because people had fought against police rather than fought against inequality and violence and premature death. And therefore, these budgetary um, conclusions that municipalities and states have come to is going to protect us. So, so we get you know very much um, the same kind of reinforcement of a certain expectation that what problems are, we know, we can define them as crime, and there are already professionals who are best poised to intervene between that harm and us, whoever we are. But I want to say something else about this, and you can tell me if there's anything similar in the U.S. as is true here in the, I mean, in the U.K., excuse me, as is true here in the U.S. And that is that, um, like all kinds of public sector workers in the United States, I'm a professor in a public university, um, U.S. public state school, um, to translate, Police are highly organized and, and tend to be in unions. And they also have their own sort of quasi-union fraternal order of the police or other um, organizations. What they have become, especially in the last 30 or 40 years, but 
pretty much over the arc of the last century or so, is extremely well-organized, highly professionalized people who can make political demands because of their level of organization. And because indeed, for most police, I'd say virtually all, they have one employer and they do essentially one thing. Whereas many other people have multiple targets that they're hitting at at any given time. And many people have many things, have many, as it were, decision makers and publics to be answerable to. And so we have seen, for example, since the COVID pandemic began, um, that each time there have been large rounds of um, resources, money resources, distributed to state and local governments in the U.S., the first in line for those resources have been police, sheriffs, and prison services like not the schools, or if the schools are first in line, what they get is more police. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It has not been hospitals. It has been this, and this has been uh, a pattern that we see throughout the United States. One of my colleagues whose name I'll look up and send to you um, uh, uh, has been, you know, very meticulously tracking this pattern. Mm -hmm. But that gives us some understanding of how well organized they are as well as the kind of um, uh, legitimacy they bring to the arena where decisions about the allocation of money resources, which is to say the allocation of the social wage, are made. Yeah, yeah. I think there is an analogy in the UK, and that's the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which, um, as we actually covered in an article um on NavarraMedia.com, which everyone should check out, um, was the uh, result of many uh, months and even years of police lobbying of of government to to change and to to, to relax and to ex- relax the rules that existed and expand their power in the process. Um, and we know that this kind of supposed wall between the powers of the police and the government is effectively non-existent. And that, like, when it comes to, for example, policing the vigil of um, uh, for Sarah Everard that the police and uh, Pretty Patel were very much in close communication. But yeah, it's it's very clear. And I think the PCSC bill makes clear the closeness and the kind of coll- the collaborative relationship of police and uh, government and the kind of, yeah, professionalization of the police force as effectively almost like a uh, an arm of the state, not not purely enforcers, but almost a whole kind of like department mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of of their own, a kind of um, civil service department almost. Um, I just wanted to 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 go back to something that we were talking about earlier, which is how the false connection or a connection is confected between uh, abolish the police or defund and claims of violence um, and how like violence always has to be kind of um, interpolated into these kinds of um, 
like conflicts um, and, I, and I'm thinking in particular about BDS um, which in this country is about to be or, or proposed to be banned for public bodies in a new kind of BDS bill um, the boycott divestment sanctions movement um, led by Palestinian civil society which has been going for about 20 years I believe and that movement um, is often accused by supporters of Israel or defenders um, of, of Israeli kind of power of being responsible or, or intending on the annihilation of Jews. Um, I'm Jewish and have lots of feelings uh, about this um, being an anti-Zionist Jew. Um, but I'm interested in, in how uh, movements which are designed to be often quite bureaucratic and, um, you know, defund the police is quite a like... We're talking about like government budgets, you know, it's it's quite a technical demand, defund. Uh, and similarly, boycott or divest, like we're talking about like budget sheets here, we're not talking about weapons. Um, how, it, how it comes to be that those movements are, um, why it needs to be, I suppose, that those movements are portrayed as violent and, and what the options are, I suppose, for supposedly peaceful protesters in an environment where like even that organising becomes painted as a form of violence, sometimes even like genocidal violence, you know, the they want um, the Israel not to exist. They, you know, this is about exis an existential threat to Jewish life, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Well, really great questions. Um, and I think existential is sort of key here for, for us to start from and, and explore a little bit. Um, I think that one of the key ways that these moral panics work so well is that they do appeal to a rather profound sense of existential dread. And this connects to the precariousness that we were discussing earlier in our conversation, which has many different um, uh, trajectories and the, its surface texture varies uh, significantly uh, between and among places, but there is this sort of common through line, I think, of um, rather profound existential dread. And that dread then um, can be and often is um, hailed to the service of um, uh, uh, an often deliberately distorted understanding of what people are trying to accomplish when we say certain things such as boycott, divest, sanction, or defund. And as you said so rightly, um, these demands have to do with um, the organization of um, uh, generally money resources and then the, the circulation of the goods and services that those money resources enable or, or, or um, disable. Uh, and yet, I have found in my long life that trying to persuade somebody that when they hear violence um, 
what they're doing is responding, however understandably, from this kind of deep existential dread that we could address in other ways, the impatience meter goes off the chart and people, whether it's my sister-in-law or, you know, a stranger, have, do not have, as it were, the, the capacity, capacity to, um, to listen, to engage, to reflect. And so then this brings us to the question of, well, how do we shift people's capacity to listen, to engage, to reflect. And um, folks have tried all kinds of, of, of methods, including what we're doing here. Like we are talking with the hope that at least one person who has come to our conversation with deep, deep skepticism, if not hostility, might hear us through and say, oh, they don't, those two people, Rivka and Ruthie, do not, do not intend harm toward me. They don't sound like fools. Why do I have such a hard time listening to what they have to say? Mm, like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is what we're hoping here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I go back to my sister-in-law, who many years ago, uh, so my brother's wife, many years ago, said um, that she had called the cops on her brother because he had slipped into the family home and taken something. And I said, well, why would you call the police on your brother? He's your brother. Like, I would never call the police on my brothers. Mm. Like, ever, ever. I mean, and and I want to say, just sort of full disclosure, have I ever been really angry with them? Yes, of course I have. Um, have I ever, you know, lashed out at them in, you know, physically? Of course I did. I mean, we're kids, you know, we grew up together. Did you ever tell on them to the old ladies on the block? Yes, you did. Right. <laughs> did, did, you know, did I, did I do things like that? Yes. But would I call, would I deliberately say, let me throw, toss one of my brothers into a system that will never take its claws out of him? I don't think I would do that. And so my sister-in-law called my brother over to our conversation and said to to him, explain to your sister why I called the police on my brother. And my brother said to me, do the crime, do the time. And I said to him, and he's not a fool, he's 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 a teacher, teaches kids, kids who have, in many cases, troubled lives. And I said to him, he had a young son at the time. I said to him, well, you know, when your son runs afoul of the police, you will sing a different tune. That's what I said. This was a family party I was trying to get out of this. (laughs) And he exploded at me. And you have no right to talk about my son. and And sure enough, Sooner or later, it happened that said son got into the crosshairs of the police and everyone in the entire family rallied to get the claws out of the criminalization system out of that young man um, person. And it took years. It took years. And we did succeed. We knew how to do a lot of things. And we did succeed. All of that 
has not changed the general response that these family members of mine have to existential dread and possible harm. Mm. So it's not experience. It's not having, you know, a sister who writes, you know, award-winning books. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's something else. Now, that son is like an organizer. He's a farmer. He does all these amazing things. He's he's grown. He's in his 40s now. But it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Wow. It's quite humbling to hear you put it like that, that like someone who's devoted their whole lives to trying to persuade people of the like wrongness of the police is just like, it's really hard. Basically, that's your conclusion and that there is no easy way. But I think what you're saying also is that like, first-hand experience isn't enough. The fundamental conditions of people's lives have to change before they can oppose, before they can let go, before they can get the police's claws out of them, before they can kind of release themselves from their own attachment to policing. It's not It's not like a personal vendetta one has against the police or a personal affection one has. It's like a fundamental like binding by the social kind of construct around one to the police that is almost like I don't know I mean like yeah really difficult to resist I think I love how you put that it's not a personal vendetta and it is about the binding that that is perfect um and this is something that I've said to many people who are you know badge wearing uh individuals I've encountered over the years um who will say things to me like, um, uh, let's say you're right, and there are more straightforward ways to um, uh, change the conditions of people's life so that harm does not happen. Let's say you're right, and it's like, all right, we've, we've gotten somewhere. Then they say, but this job I have, is, you know, it's a blue collar job. It's a good job with good benefits. It's the kind of job everybody wants. Why do you resent us having these jobs with this kind of benefit and security? And the city of New York now has a police officer. African-American police officer is now the mayor. And he's far from the first. The mayor of Chicago is a black cop. The 40 years ago, the mayor of Los Angeles, black cop. I mean, this is it's not a new thing. Mm-mm. And so, you know, I say to my interlocutors, I don't, I have no objection to the pay and benefits you have. I object to what you have to do to get that pay and benefits. So could we agree that you do something else and keep the pay and benefits? Like that would be defunding the police. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? It would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Green transition, which I guess is like why people, I suppose it's it, it comes to this um, problem, which I think abolition has partly through kind of a nominal problem, uh, which is the idea, the kind of negativity, um, it's perceived negativity rather than like its imaginative potential um, and the inability of people to envision what they might do if they weren't police, if there weren't prisons, if we didn't live in a society that needed carceralism. 
Mm-hmm. This isn't to blame movements or campaigns. I think this is, again, probably predominantly a, a kind of media strategy is to frame this as like a purely deleterious project. They're just trying to destroy things rather than build things in their place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great segue to um, something that I have, of course, been thinking about for many, many years and sometimes writing about and mostly doing. And that is um, abolition is presence rather than absence. And uh, any number of people hear abolish and what they think is um, scorched earth, salt the remains of the earth concept, right? But let's, let's think about the abolition of slavery, for example, for example, that The end of uh, legal slavery was the end of legal slavery. But as we learn from reading books like Black Reconstruction in America or um, the work of many of my amazing uh, uh, colleagues who write about um, the South Atlantic and the sort of long and complex history of the slave trade between West and West Central Africa and the Americas, Um, what what all of them show is that abolition must also be presence. And if it isn't, it's not abolition. So uh, Du Bois uh, uh, brilliantly showed how you know, in the period of uh, radical reconstruction in the U.S. South, after the end of the U.S. Civil War, um, communities made things for themselves. Public education participated in democratic processes to make decisions about land and resources. They did all kinds of things. That's what abolition was. It wasn't the end of the legal designation, it was making life, it was presence. We can see similar things around the South Atlantic. For example, the difference between uh, quote unquote abolition as uh, the police action that the British Navy um, uh, exercised by plying the waters of the South Atlantic to intercept uh, vessels, whether vessels full of captives or vessels furnished in order to carry captives, that that might have intervened in the trade, which we also know that that the British and their various treaties looked the other way to en- enable the trade to continue um, to some degree, especially between Luanda and Benguela and um, Cabinda and Brazil and the Caribbean. But for some people on both sides of the Atlantic, abolition was self-fashioned at whatever scale to be the presence of entire ways of life. And we can see again in stories how 
Um, you know, on, on the one extreme, there were various uh, forms of, you know, marinage and, you know, quilombos and so on and so forth. So people set up uh, relatively autonomous communities and fought for them, uh, not always without um, uh, recourse to uh, um, uh, cooperating uh, with uh, slave societies. And in other cases, for example, in, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember where. Um, in West Africa, the Serer uh, community was a community of, of peoples who had, in one way or another, eluded, escaped, or been rescued from captivity, who, who formed a community of multiple languages, whose like entire being uh, was at least partly um, uh, 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 designed to prevent recaptivity by anybody, you know, including the forces of, of, of missionaries and, and so on and so forth. So I, I learned that from um, Toby Green, who's a professor there in London. So, so there are, you know, all of these, you know, different cases where we can see how abolitionist presence and abolition as presence need not require the presence of people who are descendants of Africans to be realized. So we right. see abolition as presence in places like Palestine, where people have been, even in the context of, of the PA's non-sovereignty uh, and the, the, the various rounds of uh, settler colonial um, uh, oppression that seem never to end, that people are building um, uh, communities and ways of being that are bit by bit abolishing a, as, uh, a system that still exists. I mean, they're abolishing it from within, which goes back to that question of existential dread and flips it over to existential flourishing and possibility. Mm, I was thinking of the word flourishing and and actually I was thinking maybe of abolition as encouraging the flourishing of human life without allowing carceral systems to flourish with them because I, I realise that a lot of the work or at least I have realised by reading your work not your academic work alongside your academic work a lot of your kind of um, activist and campaigning work has been to prevent the opening of new prisons <laughs> and and so it's kind of it's that you're doing this work the abolitionists are doing this work to encourage human life to flourish in all these different ways while stymieing the kind of growth of the prison system alongside it as has happened for many hundreds of years it's not necessarily a singular focus on prisons and policing it's kind of like let's do all this great creative human life flourishing stuff and and just not allow that to grow put a mm -hmm. put a put a you know put a pin in that mm -hmm. exactly exactly yeah yeah it's it's so true and you know every every so often I, i'll i look up and i'll see that oh, I don't know, an organization of working class Muslim women in Singapore have declared themselves to be abolitionists and have, you know, invoked my name. We've never met. You know, I was there once 20 some odd years ago. This is great. This is great. Because in my view, what is happening is not that they have, you know, found some, 
you know, distant leader for their for their group, but rather informing um, the 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 conditions for um, changing their lives and securing their lives as they wish them to be. They've made a determination that I'm happy to have lent them some words for yeah. to do uh, the way I see it, to do what they were going to do anyway. Right, right. So they've just put <laughs> your branding on it. They've just given it what we uh, in Judaism would call a heksha, like a stamp of kosher. Yes. <laughs> like a kosher stamp. Um, that was great. I, I actually was going to pick out something that you kind of said in passing, but I think is maybe quite interesting, which um, in, in, in your response to the last question, which was um, you said, and then you gave many examples of how it's not just black communities that are facing this repression. And you kind of say this a lot in your work. You sort of like remind your reader, perhaps your American reader, perhaps your black American reader, that this is not just happening in America and this is not just happening to black people. Um, and I think there's a question here that um, I think was also raised by on another podcast that you appeared on. Um, you were asked by the host to talk about what personal history of yours led you to becoming an abolitionist. And I think you kind of objected a little bit to this question, even though, you know, you talk quite openly in a lot of your work about some of your own um, family family history about your cousin who was killed by the police and you know you're not you make no secret of that but at the same time um perhaps objected to to being asked like what about your identity makes you an abolitionist um and i think it goes back to or but what about your personal history makes you an abolitionist and i think it goes back to something that um we were talking about earlier in the conversation um uh with with regards to your sister-in-law about um you know your 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 uh opposition to policing and carceral systems is not some fulfillment of a personal vendetta, right? Um, and the, I, I wonder whether this this symptomizes that your response to, to that podcast um, host and, and maybe what you've just said there um, symptomizes some kind of resistance to sort of an identity politics that has colonized a lot of anti particularly anti-racist movements in the past 10, 10 years in particular, at least from my perspective, um, and that has framed social justice work as the redress of personal injury? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. Um, I think that one of the enormous uh, problems that we wrestle with today in many, 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 many political situations. So situation can mean a nation state or a particular, you know, sectoral theme for justice or what have you, or globalization um, has to do with how the, um, the way that globalization has, in my view, worked so well for capitalism is that capitalism has saved capitalism from capitalism by going in two directions at once. One direction has been to spread around the planet, and while it has not by any means incorporated all life and forms of life into its jurisdiction, 
It is prepared to do that. And I'm sort of gracing capitalism with a consciousness now. And by that, I mean um, uh, firms, states, uh, international financial institutions, and NGOs, all of that. So there's that. But for that to work, for capitalism to save capitalism from capitalism by making the entire um, dizzying array of resources on the entire planet, natural and, and, and other resources on the entire planet, available to commodification and appropriation means that the people below should be as fragmented as possible so that the response to this bigness is not big at all. Divide and rule. And it is divide and rule. It is so many things. So we can now, now somebody listening will say, oh, Gilmore, you sound like a conspiracy theorist. Actually, I'm not <laughs> at all a conspiracy theorist. But what I do see are patterns and it is instructive and indeed we must bring our curiosity to the patterns we see and try to understand them and try to see how we figure actively in making those patterns. Not So rather than say, oh, those patterns are, are what we passively um, uh, are shaped by, you know, passive voice, passive voice. You know, we are actively participating in these patterns in different ways. So um, the fragmentation of many people into um, relatively enclosed kind of identity units is a problem that seems like a solution, but it really is a problem. So on the one hand, asserting the specificity of certain kinds of harms and vulnerabilities makes perfect sense to me. We don't all experience the same kinds of things. And for people to insist, our big issue is settler colonialism. Our big issue is hunger. Our big issue is healthcare. Our big issue is um, uh, uh, dispossession from whatever, whatever, is poison water, that all makes sense. But to turn that into an enclosed political formation that, that not only sees itself as uniquely or distinctively victimized, but refuses the participation of people who cannot um, authentically show that they too have experienced that victimization is the death of internationalism. It's the death of solidarity. And it, and it just works so well for the NGOization of everything. I mean, if we, if we look, we could talk about this in so many different ways. We could talk about the scourge of microfinance. We could talk about the, the scourge of, um, of, of many different forms of, to go back to what the, the useful phrase that you used, divide and rule, that seem 
to recognize distinctive vulnerabilities on the part of people who have suffered, who have suffered, but turning those distinctive vulnerabilities into an assertion of, as it were, innocence. And that is the problem to me with the kind of emphasis on distinctive uh, vulnerabilities and victimization is that it turns into an, an assertion of innocence, which then completely destabilizes all of the mess of politics that we have to engage in to get out of the trouble we're in. The point is not that that I'm innocent, that my dead cousin was innocent. The point is they killed him because he was fighting to bring a, a revolutionary curriculum to the University of California right? He wasn't innocent. He did it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. He really did it. So, so the point is, you know, what is it that we do rather than what harm did we um, suffer matters, I think, enormously. And it matters enormously in figuring out how we can um, move out of some of the the traps that um, we find ourselves in, uh, whether or not we set them for ourselves, the traps that we find ourselves in that make our um, transform possibilities for solidarity into a kind of militarized um, allyship where, you know, people will say, well, so-and-so is an ally and -and so-and-so is an ally and this other person is an ally. And what makes that kind of language militarized is that it suggests that at the end of whatever skirmish we're involved in, white people will go back to white people world and black people will go back to black people world and, 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 and trans people will go back to trans people world. This makes no sense to me. Like when, when the whole point is to make a world where we can flourish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It kind of becomes attached to the the identity of victimhood as well, mm-hmm. in a way, and that mm-hmm. that like I mean goes back to our previous discussion about solutions. It doesn't become interested in kind of solutions which might require co- the letting go of categories um, and the letting go of identities if we believe that race is not uh, is a construct but still a very lived real one. <laughs> we mm-hmm. uh, we want to see the transformation of that construct which might require eventually letting go of some of the current categories of race, right? Which is kind of disastrous to those who are attached to, you know, uh, Jewishness or blackness, let's say, as the mode of their, as, as the like immutable mode of their struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is exactly right. And, um, you know, people push back at this kind of discussion and say, oh, you're just, you know, you're living in this dream world of post-racial data, post-nothing. Post nothing. It's like, how do we get through it? How do we get through it? And getting through it requires, in my view, um, I guess I'm repeating myself here, solidarity that um, 
presumes that if we win tonight, tomorrow morning, we will still be in solidarity. Right. We don't have to be, we don't have to all be friends. That is not my point. That solidarity, you know, being comrades does not require us to be friends, but it does require us to, um, to trust one another and how we trust one another is, you know, evidenced by what we make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not evidenced by what we say. I get you. This I promise this wasn't a trick question. I wasn't leading you into a sort of like gotcha, but this does seem to a little bit, I wonder whether this has any bearing on what you say about bipartisan reforms, um, because you've just professed, and I agree with you, um, in your love for solidarity. However, you have also expressed in your work quite a deep disdain for um, bipartisan work, at least in the kind of decastral sphere, saying that what bipartisan reforms do is to create two classes of people, the punishable and the unpunishable. Um, And I suppose this brings me to a question about how abolitionist movements balance the imperative to grow their constituencies, to persuade your sister-in-law, to -hmm. bring more people round to the cause with an uncompromising approach to their values. So how do we meet people where they're at uh, without diluting the message, which is a very pertinent question to the Kill the Bill movement, let's say, in the UK, which has a broad political coalition, but has also made strategic decisions not to um, stand with or coordinate or um, work work closely with, for example, the anti-lockdown movement, which might, on the face of it, share a lot of the same frustrations with police, the expansion of police power and state control. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just interested in how you kind of think about that question of mm-hmm. solidarity with people who we might not agree with all of the time. Right, right. No, that's a really good question. And it's not, it doesn't feel at all trick. Um, so, you know, for, in my view, bipartisan says something already, which is that, that, that the structure and organization of the social is, and all we can do is tweak it. Like, so it's a matter of tweaking Armageddon, is the phrase that I often use, which is different, I hope, from um, uh, working across pretty broad uh, uh, divides of, of, of struggle and opportunity in order to move forward um, what we've come to call uh, echoing, what's his name, Andre Gorse, non-reformist reform. Right. right? Um, so how do we do that? We do it, I, I, I totally recognize what you're talking about in the Kill the Bill campaign, um, and uh, certainly uh, in California, for example, the various um, abolition organizations uh, very, very deliberately came together and formed new organizations that not abolitionists could join with clear conscience in order to try to um, realize some um, uh, uh, non-reformist reform of the system. So uh, 
you know, we formed something like California's United for a Responsible Budget, which has become an abolitionist organization. But when we started it 20 years ago, it wasn't. And the whole idea was, if you are not against certain things, we will make a clear mission and we will fight for this outcome, whatever it is. But it will never involve uh, advocating for uh, uh, expanding the life or the scope of the prison and jail system. That's, that was like the only requirement. And it took, like I said, it's an entire generation. I mean, we've grown like our own leadership from within. Mm. We're in elementary school. We started this and they're now the bosses of it, <laughs> which is great. And the, you know, making these determinations is not an easy thing. So I say, oh, we did this and it sounds all seamless and people just come to the well-appointed conference room and agree. No, we get crowded into a room and fight with each other and fight a lot and fight on, you know, across a variety of themes and terms, right? Themes and terms that have to do with experience and, you know, people asserting understandably enough that their experience uh, authorizes them to uh, be for prison expansion. And we say, that's great. Go do that somewhere else. Not, not, I'm not questioning your experience. I am questioning your judgment. Right. So you can go take your judgment somewhere else. Right, right. Which sounds like quite a kind of, um, you know, hardline approach in a way. And that you're that you're that there are just some kind of boundaries that you simply won't cross cross and some things are non-negotiable. And that's basically what you're saying mm -hmm. about non-reformist reforms is that like it's willing to do away with some of the fundamental principles of abolitionism, basically. And that therefore mm -hmm. none of its exactly. proposals really are, are valid because it's the, the premises on which it is is built it, are, are, are fundamentally questionable right well the premises of reformist reform are fundamentally yes that's what i mean yeah the, Not, the armageddon yeah, tweaking yeah. armageddon exactly exactly yeah 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 and and you know one of the i was thinking as well um that i mean going back to the to the um persistent uh problem of racism, which is how we know race. We know race because of racism, rather than race somehow made racism. Um, that that people, you know, have to start from where they're at. I don't. I've never disagreed with with that um, um, idea um, or that fact of of political organizing. And yet, uh, it's also true that in the fight to change from where we're at to where we need to go, many of the categories that people have kind of clung to because they're the categories that seem to mean the most, and I don't even mean sentimentally I am attached to race. I mean, it's the one that seems to have so much meaning in the world that it, because racism uh, results in so much misery, right? So much misery. Um, 
Well, well, we see are a couple of things that maybe I can I can wind up our our conversation with. For example, um, there are a, a number of uh, series of organizing um, efforts inside the prisons in California in the first decade plus of this century. And there were uh, people organizing in prisons for women who had all been assured that the state was going to build new, nice, comfortable, gender responsive prisons. And so the misery they were experiencing that translated most into um, medical neglect that caused in prisons for women and prisons for men, a death a week, every week for decades, decades, right? Um, in, in the prisons for women in California, people organized uh, and they had been organizing as and with free world abolitionists from the end of the 90s forward. And when this offer of we will give you relief in the form of new places to be confined, uh, about 3,500 people, which is say about a third of the people held in those prisons, at great risk to themselves, signed a petition that said, not in our name. And that petition had to be smuggled around. It's not like they could just go to the canteen and sign the petition and then get their soup. Right? So, so that happened. In prisons for men, another kind of dramatic thing happened a little bit later, about five years later, um, men who are in a prison in a prison in California, the security housing unit, um, have been put there because the state of California says that these guys are all members of prison gangs or leaders, especially leaders of prison gangs. And these gangs we are told, are organized by race, region, and ethnicity. So all three of these cuts. And that they are the cause of all of upheaval and violent behavior in the prisons, period. So they've all been sent to a prison in a prison where they're locked in their cells 23 hours a day, blah, 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 blah. And they're also in these Within these prisons, they're mixed up. So in a, in a particular, say, corridor of the prison, there are people from different um, gangs to prevent solidarity. Well, guess what? So the people in one of the corridors, what is called short corridor, at Pelican Bay State Prison, uh, debated and debated and fought and fought over many years orally that kind of fighting, debated over, you know, questions related to race, racism, racialism, what it was they believed in. So these are white, black, brown, Native American uh, people in a prison for men. Uh, many of them, but not all of them, doing life sentences, but not all of them by any means. And what they were trying to do was figure out, in conjunction with people supporting them in the free world, how they could get out of the prison in the prison and go back to the general population where they can 
have a little bit more life. Right. And the first time, first round, they um, appealed to the prison administration to give them some kind of, you know, plan for how they could exonerate themselves when there's no, no court and no proof that puts them there in the first place. So this is not unlike immigrant detention and so on and so forth, though at the other end of that scale. And then some other things they asked for. Can we have our families visit? And, you know, can we have slightly better food? Like, that's what they asked for. Mm-hmm. And the prison system said, well, we'll study it. You know, we'll, we'll do a study. And so they started a hunger strike. And one, uh, one or two people died. And then the administration said, call off the hunger strike. We're studying it. And then nothing changed. So they started a new hunger strike. And again, had a lot of support in the free world as well as in other prisons because the grapevine is powerful and people hundreds of miles away learn what's happening behind the walls. And the, the organizing committee of this group put out their new demands. And instead of going upward to the prison officials, they went outward to their communities. And they said... We have to end the hostility among the races. This is what we have to do. Like, this is what we've learned in here. And they put out this call. And these are like white supremacist prisoners um, uh, who are often working very closely with some uh, brown prisoner organizations that are Mm anti-black. And then there's black and brown coming. There are all these different combinations. Mm -hmm. And they came together and made this call. So what does this tell us? It tells us something about how, you know, race seems to be in the skin. And however much race is a fiction of modernity, it really takes it out of our hide, right? It takes it out of our hide. But at the end of the day, what what these guys and everyone else who really inspires me, you know, helps us to understand is that skin is all we have to hold us together. It's our largest organ. It's vulnerable to every ambient toxin. And I'll repeat, it's all we have to hold us together, however much it seems to keep us apart. And this is where we have to start. Mm, That's such a profound anecdote. And I mean, I hope being made into a movie as we speak, because it sounds like the makings of one. Um, But yeah, and and I think a really good lesson for those of us organizing um, in anti-racist movements about like the the nature of that organizing and the and the kind of the ways that we police our movements in a way in 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 the maximal sense of that word, I suppose. Um, I think we should we should pretty much end there. I just wanted to ask, just to bring us up to the present moment, because, you know, I've, I've been reading your collected essays, Abolition Geography. Yes, exactly that. You're holding it up on the Zoom um, for our listeners. Uh, she's, she's holding the book up. But you're also writing, you're continuing to write. You, you know, you've written many books and you've written prolifically and had many interviews, as we can see in your collected works here. Why do you continue, um, you know, what is the argument you're making 
now as opposed to because clearly so much of what you've done and said um, in the past 30 years collected in abolition geography is relevant to the present day but clearly there's something that is changing and has changed that requires a kind of new and iterated argument what what is changing what is to be done now what is the terrain on which we perform decarceral work in 2022 forward well i think the answer to that really is uh, lies in the discussion we had about globalization and fragmentation and undoing that fragmentation by any means necessary so um i i i take uh, enormous uh, inspiration from many different kinds of, of organized people and organizations, whether it's the All India Democratic Women's Association or the MST in Brazil that has a, a very strong internationalist agenda while also uh, you know, fighting for quilombos and to protect people who are occupying land who can, in the, in the positive sense, who can then flourish with, with villages and, and growing food and so forth. I am inspired by people who are working frontline jobs, uh, as we call it now in the, in the age of COVID, who are, for example, in healthcare, nurses, for example, who are uh, highly organized um, in, in the United States, I think in the UK and beyond, who also have international connections. And we know about nurses uh, um, uh, uh, that they are, uh, many of them, themselves long-distance migrants, uh, who, whether from Jamaica to the UK or Sierra Leone to, Leone to the United States or the Philippines to Lebanon, I mean, nurses are, are sort of global long distance migrants who um, do the kind of work on the front line that is all about life flourishing and suffering uh, minimized and who have uh, the capacity to see, not automatically from experience, but from thinking about the world in which they are organized and living, um, thinking about how internationalism from below is a possibility and a necessity for people to be able to either stay home or go wandering, to have a home, um, to, to be in the world, to... Um, uh, uh, not to suffer from uh, the kinds of neglect, which is to say the kinds of organized abandonment that whether in the form of disease or hunger or inadequate shelter or, or, or um, uh, vulnerable transportation across the, across the Mediterranean or the English Channel are likely to produce premature death for them and the people that they are traveling with, whether they love them or hate them, makes no difference to me. Mm. So that's where I am at today, the urgency of internationalism that takes all different kinds of shapes and dimensions. There isn't one way to do it. But for me, abolition is, hold on listeners, small c communism. It actually has to do with making it possible for our lives to flourish through um, uh, using the incredible capacities that we have 
to make things and do things such that there are no billionaires. Mm-hmm. There are no billionaires. There are no billionaires. <laughs> and yet we can do stuff and have time. Like yeah. The, it's having time. Mm. And having place. You talk about freedom as a as a place in your work, which obviously yeah. has a lot to do with you being a geographer. By the way, you don't need to, our audience is not afraid of the word communist. Uh, in <laughs> fact, we sell t-shirts that say, I am literally a communist, a quote from uh, one of our hosts, Ash Sarkar. <laughs> so, uh, oh, I yeah. saw that t-shirt. Yeah, That's would you like t-shirt. one? t-shirt. Yes, I would. We'll mail you one. <laughs> it's in the post as we speak. Um, thank you so much, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. It's been an incredible pleasure and mind mind blowingly fascinating to talk with you. Thanks so much for for joining us on Navara FM. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I hope I see you again, and maybe in real life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navara FM. Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation was published in the UK by Verso on the 10th of May. I can't recommend it enough as a primer in Dr. Gilmore's thought. Ruthie is also publishing a new monograph, Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition with Haymarket later this year. Keep an eye out for that. If you enjoyed this episode of Navara FM, you might also like another I presented a while back, Police State of Mind, in which I interviewed two victims of police brutality, then asked two young abolitionist scholars to help me drill down into their experiences. Check it out. Until next time. <laughs>